I know you like it. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm about to go for a run. Yeah. This is uh, definitely my go-to type of music when I'm working out, man, as, yep. as heavy as possible. Mm -hmm. 20 years I, ago, I'd tell you about to go play a game or compete in something. Now it's just try to not get fat. <laughs> hey, that's a noble goal, man. I actually, I think I paid like $9 for this uh, clip as well because I didn't want to have like copyright infringement. So I, I grabbed some dude that, you know, writes mm -hmm. riffs on some website and paid nine bucks for it. So, so how you doing, Dennis? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right, man. Appreciate you coming in. Uh, yep. Definitely. How was the commute up from uh, Midlothian? Not bad at all. No. One small accident. Took about an hour and 10 minutes. You weren't involved in that accident, nope, right? Okay, not at good, all. good. Yeah, well, again, appreciate that. I know it's a little bit of a hike. Uh, when I invited you, I assumed you were in Fort Worth, but I guess that was probably equally or, or further uh, distance as well. So either way, man, appreciate you joining. And definitely just want to say thank you up front, taking a little leap of faith. You are the very first guest on the very first episode. So thanks for, ha thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, Spencer, thank you. Excited. My pleasure, man. I think we're going to have a good conversation today. Definitely excited about, you know, this is self-funded with Spencer. So obviously we're going to talk about self-funding. I think I'll even give you the responsibility and the opportunity a little bit to help me define that uh, for the audience since this is the first episode. But before we do that, before we get into the meat of the conversation, yeah, I'd like for you to share a little bit about who you are, who's Dennis Fowler, personal, professional, just let everybody know a little bit about you. Okay. So personal, let's start there. Uh, three kids, one more on the way. Congrats. So excited. Awesome. Yep. Three weeks away. So we are we are, sure it's three weeks to hopefully like we're not gonna get a phone call, right? I hope not. Okay. Uh, I mean, as great as that would be, <laughs> I, you know, let's just give it two hours. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so three weeks away is what we're looking at. She was at the doctor yesterday. So I'd be really surprised if something happens today. Cool, but man. Excited. So beautiful wife, three kids, um, as you mentioned, live down in Ellis County. Um, excited about that. I'd say personally, hobbies. So I smoke food. Oh, is I, that inter you, I, was, I enter like competitions. What? What were you yeah, yeah. There I we go. Food, food. Okay, food. Cool. Yeah. There we go. Yep. So I've entered a couple of barbecue competitions. My my awesome. small little tiny claim to fame is there's a prominent restaurant down there where I live, and they also entered a state competition, and they finished 28th, and I finished 27th. Not a boy. So there you go. I make better food than the local restaurant. <laughs> well, maybe maybe on on the side you might consider open up your own restaurant someday, man. Maybe in Midlothian. Maybe one barbecue day. spot. Yes. Okay. I'll bring you some brisket next time. Oh, please, dude, please. There you go. Okay, so yeah, that's personally, Dennis. That's personal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell me a little about your career, your career path. I know you're obviously a broker, and we'll ask you questions about yeah, what led you to that profession, but give us a little bit of your history and bring us up to present day. Okay, so history. So prior to being a broker, I was just in software sales, uh, looking at HRS, payroll, time systems, and then I did a lot of networking with brokerage firms, and I've been a broker now for the last 10 years. Uh, currently, right now, I am the employee benefit practice leader for RHSB in the Fort Worth office. Okay. Uh, and that's what I've been doing now. I've been with RHSB for three years, but excited about it. been uh, doing this for over 10 years now. 10 years of being a producer, a broker. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you prefer? Uh, what terminology? Like broker, producer, consultant? What's I your prefer pre consultant, but that okay. seems almost like some in some ways today, it's like, oh, you're hiding the fact that you're something more. It's, <laughs> it's like, no, I am consulting, but um, I understand that well, there's somewhat, They're inter interchangeable there, right? terms, right? So, And we'll, we'll maybe touch on what exactly is a broker here momentarily. But before we do that, I think to have a podcast about self-funding and spend hopefully many, many episodes from different angles talking about self-funding, why don't we define what exactly that means? Um, so if you don't mind, I'll, I'll give you the, the floor here and entrust you to, to help me define that for the audience. Okay, so as quick and as short as possible to let everybody know, 
Uh, insurance, no matter what you're buying in any area of your life, is always just a vehicle to transfer risk, right? So if you are in medical insurance and you have a fully insured policy, you're going to, I'm going to make up a number, paying a million dollars a year, no matter what the claims are, mm-hmm. you, you're completely covered. When you go self-funded, and what we're talking about today, which is really partially self-funded, yep. you are going to break the claims out of that contract, and you're going to pay for an admin fees for basically access to the network of doctors, PBMs, that type of thing. And you're going to pay your claims as they go. So as claims come in, you pay those claims individually. The idea typically surrounded, uh, so, sorry, stop, self-funded stop loss mm-hmm. is you're looking at it saying you're only going to pay as the claims come in you're going to save money because you're not paying an extra corridor of what sometimes is built into the fully insured. That's yeah. the basic understanding of the self-funded spectrum. So fully insured, like I often like to benchmark it against each other, right? Let's I, I'll help you understand what self-funding is by what it's not. And so like you're saying, fully insured, I'm exchanging premium uh, in exchange for the transference of risk to that particular carrier based on the four corners of the contract and the policy yep. language. Anything happens that's an eligible claim, of course, that insurance company assumes that risk. With the, the inverse of that is, the, like you said, the employer, of course, is assuming some of the risk. You talked about stop loss, which right. is you now my, my bread and butter, and I, I geek out over that. But there is some transference of risk there. But to the, the predominant uh, dollars that are being spent, of course, are the employer assuming the claims risk and paying, like you said, as they go. So that's self-funded. Great yep. job, man. I appreciate that. I there think that's, I think it's a perfect way to set the stage for the conversation and uh, you know, really set the, the conversation uh, for, for your role in, in self-funding. So the goal with this, you know, I've got some folks in the TPA world, concierge medicine, MGU uh, representative coming on here as well. Um, but I really want to tackle this today from your angle. What is the role that a broker would play in the insurance world and specifically the self-funded world? So could you help me sort of better understand that? Absolutely. So that's why I go back to using the term consultant. Okay. Consultant. Yes. Yes. What's the consultant's role in this world? Yeah. So a lot of times a a decision is made in insurance, and I would say it's made in the incorrect fashion when you're looking at things based off a spreadsheet of premiums placed. Okay. Okay. So I think anybody that's that's buying insurance today uh, when it comes to medical understands that, right? You're looking at quotes of what fully insured looks like, and you're looking at quotes of what self-funded looks like, and you're letting this spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet of premium dollars make your decision. Mm-hmm. So going back to looking at this from the, the self-funded standpoint, our role is should be as a consultant to really pull the data prior to a carrier ever providing cost and renewal mm-hmm. and expectations and looking at this and saying, if we transform your, your program altogether and pay the claims independent from the fully insured, here's what your risk looks like. Here's what we expect your claims to be. And here are other avenues along the way, right? Mm-hmm. So what are things we can do through wellness programs, maybe carving out the, the pharmacy, maybe carving out spouses, programs you can do to help lower claims, right, yep. along the way, and then project a cost for the client. So our role is to procure that insurance, but to also set a path and a course on how to help lower the claims, lower the fixed costs inside of self-funded, and really show a client if you move from one to the other, really we'll look at it basically on a five-year spectrum okay. is, our, is our typical 
That's, that's your standard period. time horizon is five years is what you're yep, planning? Yep, that's personally okay. what we do. Okay. Right, so we'll look at it and say, hey, look, over the next five years, here's where we expect you would go. Maybe three years based off, we don't have enough data. Sure, sure. Right, depends on the, the length of the client's been with one carrier or multiple carriers or how long they've been in business or how long have they had enough employees to do the right snapshot. Yep. So it's a moving target. Typically, we try to go with five years. And we'll look at it and say, hey, here's what we're going to chart your expectation of cost to be. And here's how we think we can also bend the curve of your claims. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean by consulting. We're going to pull apart the different pieces, look at it aside from a carrier, and say, here's how we can get you a lower cost over a period of time if we're doing these things to help you achieve these goals. Okay. Well, that, and so I actually, I like the, the way you kind of define that because it feels like you are a strategist more than anything. And that's what, you know, from my perspective as an outsider, as a, an ex stop loss guy that worked with consultants like yourself to help place business, I appreciate the level of sophistication that you guys have to have the, your knowledge base has to be a mile wide. And, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes they say an inch deep, but I think that does you a disservice. I think it's more like a couple feet deep in terms of what you're responsible for. But when I think about the fully insured piece of that, right? You shop to the standard Bucas, the Blue Cross, United Signet, and whoever's available. Right. And realistically, that's you can maybe shift a couple pieces of the plan design around to change the cost a little bit, but you're you're somewhat handcuffed in terms of the options. And so I definitely respect and appreciate you know that strategy component that you're bringing to the table. That's why I love self-funded. That's why the podcast is about it because there's so much to dig into. So what do you think, you know, you, you mentioned RHSB, Roach Howard, Smith Barton, right? Yep, I get that's that right? who so, we are. Okay. Yep. So tell me a little bit about that firm, what attracted you and, you know, kind of, you know, lay the table for where you guys fit in the marketplace and the type of business that you like. Okay. So let me, let me go with marketplace first sure. and okay. then I'll tell you where we fit in. So typically marketplace, when you're looking at brokerage firms, you're almost always looking at national firms or local firms. And there's a sense, and it's not always, but the majority of the time speaking that small firms are great at customer service and they lack the sophistication and the resources to provide the right consulting. Sure. You're looking at a national firm, maybe they're working with national clients or middle market clients, but typically they're going to have this driven idea and umbrella of how to approach clients with all of these resources. Okay. And I would say the concern of middle market clients typically that we that we work with is we're one of 50 fish or 500 fish in the pool that they're in, and you're not getting the customer service of what a small broker delivers. Sure. The reason I came to RHSB and, and absolutely love what we're doing is based off the fact that we are the North Texas AssureX member. Okay. So that's not just a, a network of firms, right? You have to interview, you have to apply. They're going to vet everybody that goes into this. You have to be an independent agency. Once you're in, you then also become an owner of this AssureX partnership, okay. meaning we have a contractual obligation to work with the other 52 firms to make sure that we are providing the best set of resources nationwide to all of our clients. Probably discussing so, best practices and sort of those sorts of things as absolutely. well. Absolutely. Okay. Best practices, resources within the firm, what we're doing, what we're seeing. We're having consistent meetings with those individuals. We're providing tools. Uh, anything that I would say basically a national firm is going to mm -hmm. offer, we have access through all those 52 different firms that are part of Assurex. Okay. So we have the abilities of what a national firm can deliver, but because we are still here as the North Texas independent agency, we absolutely have the customer service model of what the small firm is going to deliver. Um, so, so would we, you say national scope, local touch kind of, is that, is that a, a good way to put it? You know, you guys have access to the resources, broad scope of services and capabilities, but you're still having the local touch and feel, the relational component that's important, right? Service, 
uh, maybe uh, how promptly you're, you're applying to their problems and those sorts of yep, things. You yep. know? I heard somebody t- say one time as it's the best of both worlds. Sure. And, and while I agree, I almost, and, and not to just one up it, but I look at it and say it's, it's actually you're getting both worlds. Okay. It's not just the best of both worlds. You're getting the fact that we are small and independent. So our only investors in our client or in our company are our clients. Okay. Right? We don't have bank money, PE money, mm-hmm. nothing else coming in saying here you have to grow your margin this way. Okay. So we are truly solely focused on our clients all the time. And we also have all the abilities that a national firm has. Sure. So it is, you, whether you want to say it's both worlds, best of both worlds, uh, we really fit into a spectrum of where we're working with the middle market, small middle market clients out there to, live, to deliver uh, all the consulting of a national firm and giving them all the treatment of a true local firm. Well, see, the way that I envision sort of how you position yourself is similar to, you know, if you're working at a big stop-loss carrier or perhaps you're working at an MGU, right? Mm -hmm. They both serve different purposes, have different, um, you know, capabilities, different markets they like to go after, but there's a lot of intersection and overlap. And so the story that one of those entities tells, you know, hey, I'm one of the biggest carriers there is, or I'm a local MGU, we have access to really good paper, but, you know, I'm going to be here if you need me and we'll get right on top of your stuff. They're selling a little bit different different um, service model, potentially yep. doing the same thing, right? But it's as a customer, you have to go, all right, well, what is the more appropriate fit for me and my risk and, you know, the way I like to do business. So I like the fact that there's also, you know, you know as I say, there's a lid for every pot. I think there, there's, if there for you your position, there's, there's plenty of business to go around. And I think that's obviously useful to understand. We're all kind of competing in the same pool, but you know, there's enough to go around as well. And you'll find exactly where you fit in. So, you know, as a broker, I think you started getting into this as a consultant. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep catching there myself. You go. No, you're fine. Both uh, words work. Yeah. So as you're digging into this, I'd love to talk about, you You talked about that five-year projection and looking into the claims. Can you walk me through some of the mechanics of actually, um, you know, taking a, a client from fully insured to self-funded? I'd love to really talk about the inner workings of that. Absolutely. So when you do it, initially begins with underwriting, right? So you're going to do an independent underwriting in-house. Okay. And you're going to base what underwriting means is taking a look at the medical data of the group mm-hmm. and projecting cost. And that's going to depend on the size of the group, length of time with the carrier, where they're located. And then you start looking at the sickness of the group. And then also still almost like fully insured, you're looking at both the age and the gender. Okay. All of those different factors are going to produce a projected cost. Yep. Uh, you mentioned the the Bucas earlier, Blue, United, Cigna, Aetna. They didn't get to become billion-dollar organizations because they're just throwing darts out there trying to guess mm-hmm. at how much people are going to spend. Mm-hmm. They know. There's a science behind it. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is make sure that we have the same underwriting in, in place, that we're going to pull all of those independent pieces and look at the group's specific cost. An example, uh, if you have a cancer on the plan, and we understand that, hey, you know what? You've already had all of the chemotherapy. It doesn't matter that you spent $400,000 last year. We can prove it's in remission. We can prove there's no more treatments going mm-hmm. into next year. Mm-hmm. Besides going through two scans, there's nothing else to do. It's a $44,000 claim, right? So most carriers would just project that $400,000 and say, oh, it's still on the plan, $400,000 into right. this. And that's sometimes where they have profit coming in, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to go in and say, no, $44,000. We've proved it. Here it is. Here's the math. Mm-hmm. And now we're really pulling apart some of the different pieces. You can do that within the claims. You can do that within the pharmacy bucket. And then also through even the capitation of some of the claims. So 
explain the uh, capitation. I, that's a that's a word I hear a lot, and I, I'll admit not I'm not most familiar with. I'm sure people listening probably wouldn't be as well. So can you explain that piece real quick? Yeah, so when you're looking at the, the contract language, right, and this is why I say don't buy off a spreadsheet. Don't just get a spreadsheet that says my self-funded projection is this and my fully insured projection is this. Because mm-hmm. when you're doing that, you're, again, allowing the carrier to dictate the cost to the employer. Okay. So what you want to do is capitation of claims, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it and I get the initial quote and it has a 25% admin or uh, admin fees. I'm like, well, that, that's not, that's too high. It should be 18.9, right? So I tell them that and they're like, okay, fine. Here's, here's your 19%. <laughs> well, what they might have done is taken a particular CPT code or a type of claim. Let's just call it mental health, okay. right? And now they're going to run a per employee per month fee through as a claim. That is the capitation of the claim. Okay. And now let's just say they're going to charge $10 per employee per month. Well, you're never really going to review that if you're just letting looking at the carrier report coming your way because then you're looking at it going, oh, well, you don't look at $10 claims, right? So if you also are evaluating it independently, mm-hmm. like as the broker doing it, you can look at it and pull your client's business. And like I said, we're reviewing the medical. You know that they average $3 per employee per month for a medical claim. Okay. Well, that in that case, they just baked in $7. Of admin costs or admin fees. Of admin yeah, fees yeah. running through as a claim. So what you lost over here, it happened to you over Would here. Would you describe that as a shell game? Yes. Dennis? Okay. All right. Because that's what, exactly what it sounds like to me. Yeah. So, all right. So not to get too much on the tangent with capitation, I just, for my own purposes, wanted to better understand that. So you, you've done this analysis, right? You've projected mm-hmm. their claims forward. Let's say with perfect world, we've got a five-year project in looking at medical trend, prescription trend, the changes that you're looking to implement. You've got it on the table. You say, don't buy off a spreadsheet, totally understand, but is there still a numeric analysis that happens with your client when it comes to actually making that decision? Absolutely. Okay. And it also goes back to what are their goals? So I've had clients that have been PE owned that are saying, hey, let's the last year of ownership of this company, we're going to go from fully insured to self-funded. Okay. Because they want the claims to roll in with a lag. Yep. They want that cash on hand at sale. So there's a total different reason on why you're doing it. It's not always, I just want the cheapest, mm-hmm. right? The now, 80% of the time, that is going to be the reason. But it's not always the reason. So it starts with the goal of what the client is trying to achieve. So I'm just going to go with, to, for, to answer your question, is sure. they want cheaper insurance, okay. right? That's just the objective. That's how I'm going to answer it. So what we're going to do is we're going to pull apart a five-year projection, fully insured, saying the way the market's running, here's where your claims are today, mm-hmm. here's how they're going to underwrite it, so here's your projected cost over that time period. Yep. Now, self-funded, without doing anything to the plan, same projection, mm-hmm. right? We're going to provide that. We're also going to provide an analysis of areas where they can make improvements or adjustments to the plan. Sometimes that means buying or shifting of risk changes, right? Mm-hmm. That's not really saving a whole lot of money there. It's just buying it differently. Okay. In other areas, it's how can we change habits of the buyers to lower the cost of your claims, right? So sometimes it's fixed cost. Sometimes it's shifted cost. Sometimes it's going to be because we made or made changes to the buying habits that so lowered behavior, the number of behavior uh, costs, yeah, yeah. right? Behavior changes to lower claims. So we'll give them a projection then of saying, here's where we think we can get you if you want to buy into this plan of doing these things. Okay. So it's giving them the ability to say, okay, over the next three to five years, here's what I expect to spend. 
uh, if I stay fully insured or if I stay self-funded and the reasons why behind that. Okay. Well, so let's, let's talk about that. So that same scenario, right? You've shown the five-year projection. If they stay fully insured, assuming you're probably uh, incorporating some sort of medical trend in that. Absolutely. And, and so over that five-year period, you'll, you'll see the Delta presumably grow between the two options. Mm-hmm. You know, walk me through, all right, you've laid out a, a fantastic case with your client. And they're still just not there. So what sort of objections are you getting uh, to make that transition from them? What are the common things that you hear from your clients or prospects even? Yep. So really it's two different things based off what seat they're in. So I'll give you the CFO and then the The HR HR. department. Right. So two different departments, really. CFO is always saying or asking the questions, right, depending upon their line of business. Uh, I have to be responsible for the amount of money I'm projecting into this spend. Mm -hmm. So do they feel truly confident in this happening? Right. So it's the confidence of, is it really going to happen? Sure. And, or is it, Hey, I have to cut costs. I'm, I'm willing to dive in. Okay. Right. But it's sometimes when you go self-funded, there's an unknown because it's a corridor, right? Mm-hmm. You have a stop loss policy, but what if the bad happens? Yep. Right. So the objection usually from the CFO table is the unknown. Okay. And then on the HR table, the objection would become, I don't want change or I don't want additional work. If it's always, burden, exactly. Right? Yeah. If it's always been this way, and once it's fully insured, really, there's not a whole lot of work to do until the next renewal. Well, that's Besides why you have a great consultant uh, as well to help you out with that. Yep, but the plan is set in place, okay. right? So the HR department sometimes looks at it and says this is more work. And really, it's not. It's different work, but it's not more work. And typically, like you just said, right, uh, you could say me, but the, any consultant should be helping you along the way in of all of those areas. Uh, whether it's the account management team or the or the broker themselves, there's n- really not that much difference. But it's an unknown, okay. so it's it's always the battle of the unknown. Well, you're you're effectively at that point selling confidence, right? Confidence in what not only are your projections relatively accurate because we know nobody's ever going to hit it spot on, but the confidence in making that transition, taking a little bit of a leap of faith, and trusting you as their advisor that this is the appropriate uh, way to go, the appropriate funding mechanism. And the way it's going to operate, they'll understand and you'll be there to support them. So you're selling them a confidence. And you, you mentioned the unknown. I right. always think it's kind of interesting where somebody will stick with something they know, even if it's continually painful, right? I can quantify my costs next year, even though I know they're going to go up 15% if I stay fully insured. Well, at least I know that's exactly what's going to uh, happen. Or at least you know, that's the worst case scenario. This is going to happen. Do you ever get into conversations with them about maximum liability and worst case scenario for being self-funded and really explain that, hey, in the worst case, if you want to know what could possibly happen in the worst situation is here, does that help provide that assurance for them? Yes. So I mentioned earlier about how carriers don't get there by accident, right? So if we've hired the same underwriters and doing the same type of underwriting that carriers doing, we have the same expertise, Mm -hmm. right? So just like fully insured, sometimes you come in 110% to plan. It's not a guarantee, right? Especially if you're going to go through an acquisition and bring on 300 additional employees and you don't know their risk before it happens, things can change. Mm-hmm. But I would say with certainty that we're hitting within a few points of that expected claim well over 90% of the time, okay. right? So you're, you're, you do have that expertise. And what I also tell everybody is for the first year, of course, the first year at least minimum, fund to maximum. Okay. Right. Go ahead, anticipate for worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. And if you have the cash flow to do it, and then you'll never have to look back again. Yeah. It's kind of like rollover minutes, build right? Build the reserves, yeah, right? Yeah, build the reserve. So you're always going to have the ability to have the bad month or the bad year if you funded maximum. Okay. So that's well, yeah. The- so, I mean, and then that you go, all right, well, at least if you, if you want to talk dollars and cents and look at the bottom line, I can put to you a top dollar of, of worst case scenario 
if you want to, uh, you know, basically uh, use that as your contingency to, to budget for. So that makes, makes total sense. And, you know, I've, I've sat at the table. It's been a long time. I was kind of the numbers guy in my a previous world as a broker. And so didn't get into the story as much, which I realized there is an artistry to, you know, not convincing them, but, you know, showing them that this is potentially the best solution and here's why now, ultimately it might take a couple years to get them to come around. And I totally understand right. that as well. So let's talk about, um, you know, from a different angle, I know one of my, uh, you know, from my standpoint, one of the most common misconceptions about why you choose self-funding, but I'd like to hear from you. And if you don't touch on the one that I'm, pro you probably will, but what are some of the things that you hear that people deflect going self-funded and what are the, it's really a misunderstanding about it. The number one that I, and I'll call it the EKG effect. Okay. Right? I can't Tell me about cash EKG. flow. Okay. Right. So cash flow doing this. So everybody's looking at that, right? Yeah. EKG, right? Heartbeat. They think that if I have a $500,000 claim that comes in the first month, I don't have $500,000, right? You can cap your monthly spend on a self-funded program, just like you cap the year. Mm -hmm. And all you do is roll over the addition of the claim into the next month until you're back under where you've capped it. Okay. Right? Are you talking ag accommodation? Is that yes, what we're talking about? Yes, absolutely. Right. So you can do monthly ag accommodation, right? Okay. And trying to describe it in a way where you're not saying ag, because people are like, what's ag accommodation? Yeah. Right. So it's not, it's not like an, an ag exemption where I live, right? So you're, you're basically- <laughs> You don't have to have cows on your land, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah, okay. right? Uh, you're, you're capping your monthly spend through a cat, uh, ag accommodation, and you're just rolling over the, the additional claim to the next month. So you don't have that type of risk. That's typically what a CFO or a CEO mm -hmm. or those that don't do it frequently or evaluate it frequently or haven't done it in the past are concerned about. That's okay. the number one. Okay. Yeah. And that's, see, it's funny, the EKG effect. I've never heard it uh, described like that, but I think that's a really good way to put it. You know, I, I've graphed these things before, right? With a little graph in Excel and it's exactly what it looks like. There's blips, mm -hmm. there's downs and ebbs and flows of the claims. And I think that's something that people need to get uh, used to is right. It's not a level uh, amount unless you're level funded, which, you know, we can talk a little bit more about where there is at least a, 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 a uniform payment right. every single month. And so getting used to the fluctuations in claims that sometimes they're high, sometimes they're low, that can be something I think that folks need to come around to. The misconception that I, I have heard a lot and, you know, whether or not it actually bears itself out in the real world, I believe most people, you mentioned maybe 80% of the employers are chasing savings. There's right. assumption that it will, I will definitely save money. I think on average over time, there's a strategist that I used to listen to do whiteboard sessions. And he would, he would say on average over time, you will save money. And I think that is unequivocally true. Perfect. But there's perfect. Word. Yeah, exactly. Cause there's a little bit of an out on there. average yeah, over time. time. Um, but there's also the assumption that, well, the first year I move self-funded, I'm going to save money. Not j just because it's on the paper doesn't necessarily mean there is a worst case scenario. There's some contingencies that you have to think about. Maybe you didn't put the appropriate stop loss in place. And so that's the only misconception um, that I perceive from my end as one that I, I tend to say, okay, yeah, probably, mm -hmm. but not necessarily. So have you ever had a situation where either a prospect was deflecting, you know, going self-funded because they did it 15 years ago and it blew up or something like that or Absolutely. Okay. So, right, 15 years ago, too, it wasn't done the same way. True. Right? You couldn't true. do all of these same things to these contracts that we're talking about carving out and evaluating. And there was a whole lot more than four carriers, mm -hmm. right? So, 15 years ago, there probably was more risk put on the employer. Okay. So, for those that happened to 15 years ago, I would say, hey, you know what? I understand it did, but it's not the same today. So, you know. Well, and do you think that some of it's uh, maybe down to an improperly structured plan? The strategy wasn't really long term enough maybe reactionary. I think sometimes folks will go, oh, I got a really bad renewal. So let's go self-funded and kind of do a crash course and not really think about why. 
you know, those, that's the only time that I ever saw from a stop loss perspective where the first year self-funding blew up is it was just, it wasn't intentional, you know, what they were trying to accomplish. It was just a knee-jerk reaction to a bad increase. And then, you know, you're really setting yourself up for failure, I think, if that's the only reason that you're going into it. That, that's, you just said it perfectly. Because okay. if your reason of going into it is chasing the lower premium, then you've done it wrong. Sure. Right? Because you need to, you just said it, right, set up incorrectly. Right? You have to lay out independently from what the carrier is saying, your own underwriting projection. And I say you as in the broker, right? Mm-hmm. We need to be providing that to these employers. Because we need to say, based off what happened last, like you just said, if you had a bad year last year and you're getting a bad fully insured renewal, it's likely because you had bad claims, <laughs> right? So yeah. if those claims are still there and they haven't left the plan and they're just going to grow next year, why would you go self-funded, right? If, if your self-funded projection is going to be higher than the fully insured renewal, mm-hmm. like there are times to stay fully insured. Yeah. So, you know, you have to be evaluating it independently of the carrier again to make sure that you're looking at the expected cost and evaluating both programs. Yeah, and that's another one of those misconceptions. And I don't know if it's necessarily not the case, but the assumption that the numbers that the carrier are providing are accurate, right? Or that you're entrusting the carrier to set the benchmark. Mm-hmm. I think that can obviously set you up uh, for failure as well because they don't necessarily have the same alignment of interest that you're you're. Can I give an example does. to that? Sure, please. Yeah, please, absolutely. Yeah. So I, the question I dislike the most, so if the carriers are watching this, right, with your camera, I'm looking at this one right here. Don't call me and ask, where do I need to be? Okay. Right? Yep. So all that means is they're going to lower the premium well, how do you lower the premium very easily on a stop loss projection for mm-hmm. a quote? You lower the expected claims. Yep. Yep. How does that just it doesn't you, change the risk? It just yeah, yeah. the risk is yeah. the same. The same claims are going to happen no matter what. Mm-hmm. So people can get sold, right? Mm-hmm. They can buy into stop loss or self funded just because somebody changed a number on a spreadsheet. Yeah. So you have to. That's why again, you have to be the consultant that is providing independent analysis. Because it is so easy on that spreadsheet to say, oh, I really need your business. Uh, I'm going to just lower your expected claims. Here's your new premium. Yeah. Oh, you finished 120% to expect a bad year. So sorry. Yeah. No, that was the number you were going to hit the whole time. Yeah. yeah so yeah. you have to know that number, not just looking at the premium. Yeah. And that, you know, that, from my perspective, right, there's a little bit of a science and a little bit of art about stop loss sales, right? And there's mm-hmm. a number of levers that you can move. You know, I'll raise a deductible, add an ag spec, you know, take off some provisions on a contract, add provisions on a contract. You can get a pretty big delta in premium just by making a few small changes to the contract language or the terms and conditions, right? And like you said, you can make it look like whatever you want to look on the spreadsheet. And that number looks great. That premium number, those expected numbers look great. But like, what did you strip out or what did you move around? I mean, that's really, again, where a good advisor is going to be worth their weight in gold is to understand the differentials between those contracts and what you're gaining or what you're losing by making a decision to chase numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So, all right, so that's awesome. Um, So I don't want to, I'm not going to entrap you with this question, but I do, I want to put you on the hot seat a little bit. General knowledge in the broker community, the consulting community of self-funding, don't have to, you know, don't have to get you in trouble. But, you know, what is your perception of somebody that's been in in a decade? Generally speaking, is there pretty good self-funded knowledge in the marketplace? I would say it's greatly improved. Okay. Especially since the Affordable Care Act was originally put in place. Kind of forced people to it, learn. Absolutely. Okay. But I wouldn't say that it's where it needs to be. Okay. So, and again, I'm talking to all brokers everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? No, that definitely not, don't not, have not to call anybody out. Yeah, yeah right, sure, right. sure. Because, uh, you know, going back to 15 years ago when I said things were very different, right, you had so many carriers and so many products 
typically carriers would come in and teach brokers, here's what you need to know about my product. Let me get you a quote. And mm -hmm. because there was so much marketplace business and opportunity, prices were getting driven lower, okay. right? So Affordable Care Act steps in. Everybody says you have to buy this amount of insurance, this out-of-pocket max, this deductible max, and everybody's buying everything that's within the same realm of spectrum. So carriers by carriers, we're down to four carriers right here locally, okay. right? Yep. And because of that, you, you're in the place of where you can no longer let the product be what's being sold to the client, right? And that's where the shift happened from, from selling insurance to being a consultant. That's mm -hmm. what's happened. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need to do a better job in the community together mm -hmm. as brokers of analyzing the cost of that bucket of insurance, the risk, right, that's involved, and then having that conversation. We should look at ourselves as not somebody selling insurance. That's what we were looked at 15 years ago. Yeah, that's fair. We should look at ourselves as buyers, Okay. right? We are on behalf of the client, a buyer of the insurance. Mm -hmm. So we're evaluating the risk. We're going in and picking out the pieces, whether that's PBM, contract language, uh, potential ways to lower behavior, whatever I say ways to lower behavior, change behavior to lower claims, right? We should be looking at ourselves to do those things better instead of letting the spreadsheets and the products make decisions. I, I love that answer, you know, and that's, all, again, as a, an outsider, but one that works with brokers and has worked with brokers for a number of years, enormous amount of respect for what is required of you and the assumption of what you're supposed to know. You're supposed to be the expert on anything insurance related, regardless of the changes in the industry and the new products that come out. And so I have a, a great deal of respect for that. So it wasn't a question that was driving at the insinuation that, you know, people don't know what they're doing. And it's part of the reason why I wanted to do this, right? Is mm -hmm. like, I, I used to win business as a rep because I would go educate my clients. I would take an hour and do some whiteboarding or do some CE courses, train them on stop loss. And there was a level of appreciation for that giving. Um, they go, all right, well, now that I'm the first person, they pick up the phone when they have a question about stop loss, whether or not they were going to place business with me that time, maybe, maybe not. But just understanding that if I could give some knowledge to them when brokers and their account managers and account executives and everybody is required to know so much, I felt like that was a good way to build rapport. And, you know, from that was my mm -hmm. little contribution to the marketplace. Yep. Right. And I think this I'm hopeful with this will do something similar to that. And it's not there's nothing wrong with not knowing something. It's just, Absolutely. there's not a great place always to find the information that you need. And mm -hmm. so I think building relationships like this, where you can have conversations like that is important. But I just, I also got the sense sometimes I'd be selling stop loss and I'd be almost guiding the strategy to a degree. And you're like, well, okay, I'll help you. But you have to understand, I don't know everything. I'm not a broker. You have a lot of other responsibilities around compliance and what's best for your client. I'm going to give you my opinion, but, you know, I probably shouldn't be leading the conversation on this either, you know? So I right. felt like there's a line that I had to draw uh, in that conversation. Yep. That's what I, tell, I try to tell employers or, or potential clients of ours, right? So if you're typically getting the question that comes in that says, let me tell you about a product, right? That That's a bad sign, right? And if you're just getting the spreadsheet of costs, that's a bad sign. Uh, you know, we as, as consultants need to be talking about here's your risk, mm -hmm. What are your goals? Let's achieve goals. Okay. And then you put together the right program. And it is important. We have good relationships. I don't want to act like the, the carriers are our bad people, Oh, no, right? not, not at For all. For us, because yeah. like, I, I know I've said a lot of things about you got to evaluate against them, which is true. 
but we, you also have to understand the products. You have to understand the potential of what the risk is within those products, mm -hmm. but we shouldn't be allowing, you know, we absolutely should be educated by them because we need to understand everything within their programs, mm -hmm. but it's our job to then go in as a buyer on behalf of that client and also poke holes in it. Right. Yeah. So we have to find those hidden pieces of where there might be additional, I would say profit to them. Right. We have to make sure that we're evaluating those independently to make mm -hmm. sure that our client is getting the best product. Well, it should be a mutually possible. beneficial relationship for everybody. The carrier, Absolutely. the broker, the client. You know, there's not it's not to say that somebody has to lose. Right. You just right. want to make sure that somebody doesn't egregiously win on mm -hmm. behalf of other folks. Right. To the detriment right. of other folks. So, and I, I've had clients win egregiously just like okay. that. You talk yeah. about like COVID changed that this last yeah. year. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So just fully insured groups right now. Right. I mean, I had somebody renew at a negative 16 with a two year guarantee. Okay. And I had to tell him, I was like, look, that happened because of the amount of reserves your carrier has. Sure. And they want to secure your business over the next two years. But I am underwriting you, right? Let's remove the fact that nobody went to the doctor for six months. Yeah. Let's take your average claims. Right. Let's take your average claims and project it forward for two years. I can almost guarantee you that when you renew in two years, you're going to be in a world of, of change. So let's if you're, plan ahead. Right, that, plan right? ahead, yeah. right? So we're already looking at going self-funded that, that third year. So we're going to be putting in place as metrics the second year mm -hmm. to change behavior and buying habits, mm -hmm. knowing that we're going to try to shift the contract at that point to take advantage of the different buying habits. But now we've locked in two, right, two years of under 16%. So Most people aren't going to say no to that either, right? Like even right. if you're like, oh, well, it probably could be negative 40, but, you know, I'll take the negative 16 for two years. And that's and, what they did. Yeah, no, yep. that's, that's fair, right? I mean, it, let's not pretend that the carrier doesn't also have to make money. Like, mm -hmm. I, you know, I feel like it doesn't have to be a contentious relationship necessarily. It just needs to be appropriate and fair for all parties. And then you, you make some money, we make some money. Like I said, everybody yeah, wins. They're in business to make money. I mean, we have, like, you look at this, they're on the stock market, yeah. right? You know, they need their business to grow. Sure. Right? It's just a matter of making sure that each one of your clients isn't the one that they're, you know, making 500% on. Yeah, yeah. Right. Fair enough. So, you know, traps before we kind of, well, a couple more questions and we'll wrap things up here. Okay. Traps that sometimes employers get themselves in when self-funded, whether, you know, maybe you've seen a, a forgetting a particular contract term on stop loss that's appropriate, or maybe, you know, entrusting a certain arrangement, uh, a bundled arrangement versus an unbundled, you know, do you ever feel like there's some not kind of along the lines of that question of misconceptions, but what are some mistakes sometimes that are made when being self-funded. I'll give you an example that I'm thinking of. Knee-jerk reaction, go self-funded, going to go back fully insured, forget to purchase terminal liability. liability. Okay, you know, that's one of those that I've seen time and time again. Anything else like that that you feel like traps to avoid uh, for, or maybe you're not setting up your clients with these traps, maybe some prospects that you've seen potentially set up in a bad position like that. I'll say it almost goes back to, well, we're talking about setting it up, right? Yeah. Buying it the wrong way. Okay. So I would say the number one trap, and I'm not, not trying to be redundant here, but if you buy it because you saw the lower cost for premium mm -hmm. and then you just close your eyes and come back at renewal, bad things could have happened, right? Okay. So yep. the trap is not having the, the, the very first trap is not having an independent analysis on what the expected claims should be so you don't run into a period where you haven't funded correctly. Underfunded, I presume, right? right? right. Yeah, you yeah, have yeah, it funded, yeah. so you've underfunded, yeah. and now you need to spend extra, right? Or you're going to get a massive increase. And if you go back to fully insured, fully insured is going to ask you why, right? And you're like, well, we had a bad year. And they're like, well, I'm going to inflate that too. Here's your increase. Yeah, yeah. Right. So the, the number one trap is not getting it set up correctly. Okay. Not, now, in the contract piece, right, because mm -hmm. I think that there's some, some aspects there you can look at, right? Uh, you talk about bundled and unbundled, and I'll just touch on that real quick, both yeah. on each sides. 
So when you're bundling it, it's typically for ease, right? Sure. I'm going from fully insured to self-funded. I don't want to have a bunch of moving pieces. Easy button on the desk, exactly. right? Exactly. Easy button. Yep. There you go. So when we say bundled, right, you're going to have the the same carrier is also going to be your TPA. They're going to provide the pharmacy. It's all going to be within this one contract. When you do that, there are still going to be layers of profit that probably could be carved out. Okay. And so is, is it a trap? Maybe. Mm-hmm. But but if it's a known before you do it. It's not a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? But you just have to understand that uh, what are the pharmacy rebates? Uh, what are the costs for those scripts that are being filled? Mm-hmm. Uh, you could have found a cheaper way to do that if you were willing to carve it out. And then, uh, you know, we went back to capitating claims, right? All of that is part of a self-funded contract. There are fully insured pieces of claims in a self-funded contract. Uh, another one on one of those would be uh, the percentage of savings of claims. Okay. Yeah. Right. So let's give an example. You have an $80,000 claim. If you don't have the contract written correctly, the carrier might put in there and say, Hey, uh, we get 40% of savings. What that means is the $80,000 billable amount, mm-hmm. right? So that's what they charge. Well, as a carrier, we've negotiated 50%. So now yeah. it's a $40,000 claim. Mm-hmm. Well, they might have language that says we now have 40% of your savings. So we're going to run another claim through <laughs> of $10,000 yeah, yeah. on the $40,000 of savings. You never see the 10 because it's not a large claim. Okay. You just see the 40. Okay. Right? So you can actually take that 40%, lower it down in some cases to 30%, right? So there's pieces of the contract that are The fine gonna, print that you really got to dig into, yes, presumably. Those, yeah. they're, they're negotiable, mm-hmm. right? Don't think that you have to get a contract and have to stick with it, right? And that is in the bundled arena. Sure. And then I'll say when you unbundle things, make sure that you're doing it, I would say doing it well, right? Because if you're going to take a different stop loss carrier from the, the, the right, you're looking at, let's just call it one of the bukas, mm-hmm. right? And you're using an, an ancillary third-party stop loss carrier. Are they going to mirror claims? Yeah. Right? That's I'm number glad one you mentioned thing. mirroring. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. So what that means to people that, that haven't done before is, mm-hmm. you know, are we going to cover claims the exact same way that the carrier that is, they're going through the network of doctors, right, is defining the claim? And those things can be tweaked and, and changed. Mm-hmm. If they're not going to mirror claims, well, what if you had a $300,000 claim, but the way the stop loss carrier wrote their contract, well, yep. they're like, hey, we're not responsible for that because that is, that is something that we've written out. Um, people don't know that that can happen. Sure. Um, so again, if you just get quotes and go off the quotes, right, you get the cheapest stop loss quote mm-hmm. and you're looking at it going, hey, that's 5% cheaper. I'll take that. Well, one. that's what's it. Yeah, that's one of those intangibles that you can't necessarily quantify. What is a plan mirroring endorsement worth? What is it worth until you find out that half a million dollar claim, like you said, was ineligible based on the carrier's language um, versus the plan document? So that's you know, it's like I need to know that that's in there, but not everybody right. is aware that that's even a thing, let alone something they consider when making a recommendation about a carrier. That's one of those traps I see. The other one that I see from my perspective was misalignment of, you know, stop loss contract basis, mm-hmm. right? And then we could probably spend 20 minutes about that, but just, you know, maybe they're on a 12, 12 in year one and they don't necessarily know, well, I've got to go to some sort of run in, whether it's 18, 12 or 24 on year two, they get a little sticker shock on the other right. side of that, right? You're like, why is it up 40%? It's like, well, there's a mature contract in place now versus the immature first year contract you had. That's a trap. I think just, 
making sure to reiterate that, reiterate that to them over and over that be expecting this on the renewal because we have to do this just to make sure you're covered. So that's one of those traps that I saw is like, oh, well, we'll just stick with a 12-12 or we'll do a 15-12 and you, all of a sudden you find something falls out, falls in that gap between those contracts. Yep. And that well. goes right back to my point of don't buy it on a year-to-year basis. Yeah. Right. If you're looking at everything from year to year, you're looking at that premium and then you're going to be getting a conversation year two, right, of, oh, well, the market this and that, and, <laughs> you know, you're going to start being like, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Just, okay, I'll buy premium again. And that's when you get yourself in a bad spot, right? You should always be looking at this over a three to five year or wh- whatever period you need to be looking at it. But a, a broker consultant should be being able to evaluate it over that length of time. Well, see, that's how I feel like some broker needs to come out and be like, I do a seven-year horizon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, I heard that guy's podcast totally beat that. Going eight years now. Exactly. All right, so a second to last question. I know this is a difficult thing to answer, but if you had a crystal ball, Dennis, let's talk about the future of this industry a little bit. Um, what mm-hmm. do you envision over the next five years changing or staying the same about the self-funded industry? I would say that more people are going to be looking at it. You're going to see more products and changes, and you're going to see it come downstream more. Okay. Downstream in terms of size. Size of groups, right? So the reason I say that is what happened largely on the Affordable Care Act front when it first got put in place, right? And the reason I bring that up is because we're probably going to see more people join back onto the public exchange, right? That's probably Mm going to open up to more individuals again. What happened is only the sick people bought it, Mm -hmm. mostly, Mm -hmm. not only, mostly the sick people bought it, and carriers lost big time, right? So more, more claims than premium was taken in. The the, what we'll call it, the tax, mm-hmm. right, for not participating, the penalty, thank you, yeah uh, the, the, for not participating, started off at $90. I think it ended at the end of the four years at $270, okay. right? That did not in any way offset the difference. So if we have the same scenario again, these carriers know in advance now, right? right. The exchange isn't going to go good for me. So if that is going to be their anticipation, then they're going to load, right, the private sector, in a way to make up the cost. That private sector are these fully insured clients. So you're gonna see a difference in, in their adjusted cost coming forward, Okay. probably. So how do you get away from that? You go self-funded. Go self-funded, yeah. Right, so I think you're gonna see new products. And the reason I say downstream, the easiest group it is to kind of bundle in the, the right, how do I make profit for losing over here, are smaller groups, right? Because okay. you're not being underwritten by yourself. You're being under, when you're a small group, right? Mm-hmm. You're being underwritten with a group of people renewing at the same time in the same set of zip codes as you okay. because they have a defined cost at those areas and centers of hospitals, doctor's okay. offices. So they, they know in what they need to do to increase cost in this whole group over that whole bucket. The pool, right? The, yes. The, yeah. So what we're going to see is a probably an influx over the next 18 to 24 months and maybe even starting sooner, right, of cost being just built into fully insured products. So you're going to see more products come out, uh, level-funded products, mm-hmm. products where you're getting to bundle reference-based pricing with a PPO that's fully insured, kind okay. of into a level-funded contract is one I've seen. You're going to see additional captives. And like I said, you're going to see more, more pressure in the marketplace from people trying to make stop-loss or self-funded insurance work for them because they're trying to avoid what is coming in the fully insured increases. To okay. Well, you know, I, th- I don't, I don't disagree with anything you just said. I mean, I, from my perspective, I see 
a number of solutions that are coming into the marketplace almost seemingly on a, a weekly basis of you know, a level-funded product where we've pulled together a couple stop-loss carriers. We've got our own third-party administrator. We've got our own PBM. Here's an off-the-shelf solution, but does have kind of some best-in-class moving parts. And you mentioned right. reference-based pricing. And, those, yep. you know, so I think it's kind of cool that your 100-life group can get access to five, 10 years ago what your 10,000-life group was probably Absolutely. doing. And so that's that's why I believe you're, you're right, that it is going to continue to dr- be driven downstream. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the floor is, uh, you know, 25 lives, 10 lives, who, who knows what we'll find out. Uh, but I do think that's going to continue to trend that way. Um, so wrap it up, man. We've we got a couple minutes left. Anything you want to leave the folks out there with? Like, what do you want the industry to understand? Or what if, if there's one thing that was be taken away from our conversation today, what do you think it is? I'll say this to employers out there. And okay. then I'll also say one thing just to m- me, the end user. Okay, right? So sure. I'll, I'll do two. Uh, employers out there let, and consultants, let's get away from from buying off spreadsheets and, and being educated by the people that are selling to the broker to then re-educate to the employer. Okay. Right? We all have to start defining risk, looking at the total spectrum of risk and making sure that we're projecting it correctly. Because if not, we're always going to see this continued path of increases. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter... Any, anything else, right, right, doesn't matter which political party is in place. If we're not doing that correctly, there's always going to be increases that are unjustified. Okay. Um, so for all of us, it's let's get away from that spectrum. Uh, and then I'll say me, the end users, right? If, the, if we all had a better level of accountability and quit looking at insurance mm-hmm. as a vehicle to access medical, I think that we would be having lower prices. Let me give you an example. Okay. Uh, let's pretend you have a car that's eight years old and you've had uh, some fate. It's red. It's mm-hmm. faded. Sun's kind of beat it down, right? You're not going to go park it outside in a hailstorm and hope to get it repainted, right? Or and dents removed, right? You're not going to try to create a claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, Unless med- I'm an unscrupulous person, then maybe I will try to create a claim. Right. But you also know what's going to happen to your, right? We yeah, all your know, rates are going to go up. My rates are going yeah, up. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to do that. Right? Yeah. We have to understand as people that when we do that with our medical right? Uh, we do the same thing to our medical plan, mm-hmm. right? It's going to go up. So we need to be doing things from an accountability level when it comes to shopping for care or understanding what's going on or looking at cash price versus using my insurance. Sometimes it is better to pay the cash price, right? The insurance there should be, yeah. should be looking at it as, wow, a tornado hit my house. It's leveled. I can't afford a new house. Yeah. I need insurance for that, right? Yeah. If we approached medical a little bit closer to that, right, with the mindset, uh, I think we would all as individuals be doing our part to help drive a lower cost of insurance as well. Awesome. Well, very well said, Dennis. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you to uh, PlanSight, of course, for the sponsorship. Thank you to VentureX for this amazing studio and these new uh, arms on their microphones. This is uh, amazing. So, again, appreciate you having you on, man, and uh, look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks, Dennis. Bye.